Hello, everybody, and welcome to a special edition of The Late Sub. We had too much good stuff to talk about this week, which meant we had to come back, hit you with some college basketball, hit you with some more international football. I am your host, Claire Watkins. We are going to discuss another wacky week of college basketball. We're going to dig into some of the upsets in the top 10. We're going to dig into why we still think South Carolina is the favorite before we turn into the final week of regular season and get into conference tournaments. And then we're also going to talk about some soccer that's happening away from the United States. We don't want to get too navel-gazing here. We're going to talk about European Olympic qualifying and dig into what we might see this summer in Paris. Let's go. We're going to hit up some of the big college basketball stories of the week because it is getting chaotic in college basketball. So we're going to start, again, big picture, and then kind of dig into some of these storylines. Ultimately, we saw South Carolina continue their winning ways, still undefeated. Ohio State at number two had a really steady week. Um, They Shout out to Ohio State for at least temporarily holding off the number two curse. They've held that held that position proudly over the last two weeks and gotten their games won. Um, Past that, it has been pretty chaotic. Six teams in the top 10 lost at least one game this week. Um, Call it fatigue, call it um, other teams rising, call it form going up and down, end of season. There's a variety of different reasons why this stuff is happening, but the the season of parity is still upon us. Uh, But let's start, let's start with, with South Carolina who had another strong week. Um, It's really, I've said this before, they're an interesting undefeated team to me in that when you watch them play, it's so obvious why they haven't dropped a game because they can beat you in so many different ways. Um, And sometimes they dominate and sometimes it's close and they have a lot of different looks that they can give. And I think maybe a good example of that is this week, uh, Dawn Staley, I think, did an interesting thing, which is that she rested center forward Camilla Cardoso for two games. Um, Cardoso traveled uh, internationally midseason to help Brazil with their Olympic qualifying. When she came back, uh, Staley basically just said she needs some rest. We're going to try to load manage a little bit. And so South Carolina was playing without their starting center for these two games. And they obviously had a couple games a couple weeks ago when, when Cardoso was, was out with Brazil. Um, and they still kind of dominated. They still looked really, really good. I mean, I think people looked at the, it was almost a, a 50 point win um, this weekend. They're shooting well. They're hitting momentum well after a couple weeks where some of the shooting wasn't necessarily as strong as it had been at the beginning of the season. Um, I like that. I think that's a good example of a top college coach with the depth to be able to pull something like this off, but also making the decision of like, okay, we need to have a player like Cardoso feel fresh as possible going into SEC conference tournament, going into NCAA tournament. And also let's run some drills. Let's get Ashlyn Watkins, uh, you know, having her at the post. Let's see if we can change some things around. Let's see if we can look at what this team looks like without Cardoso. Should that happen? Perhaps, you know, we know people get into foul trouble in the tournament, stuff like that. So I like the versatility for South Carolina. Still think that they are the top of the class at at this moment. But um, I think it's all the different ways that they find to win that I find most impressive. Uh, But let's talk a little bit about the chaos underneath them. So Stanford, Iowa, NC State, USC, Oregon State, and Kansas State all took losses this week. Only USC, actually, no, Iowa and USC were ranked losses. Everything else, all the other losses were to unranked teams. Um, As I mentioned, I think you can point to end of regular season fatigue with some of these. Anytime a Pac-12 team loses, whether it's to an unranked team or to a ranked team, I think you can point to just the punishing nature of that conference this year. Um, 
there is no really bad team in the Pac-12. And there is also an element of feeling fatigue from just so many ranked battles that these teams are having to participate in. I do think it will make them stronger in the NCAA tournament. I do think that, like I said, if you have a lower seeded PAC 12 team in your quadrant and you're a fan of one of these other teams, watch out. I think we're going to see a lot of low seeding just by nature of how some of these games have played out across conferences. Um, There's going to be a lot of sleeper teams in, in, in the NCAA tournament. And so I guess like I, I keep saying this, but I would not put too much chalk into your NCAA bracket this year. Uh, I think you also, though, can look at, okay, what are the ways that some of these top teams are getting shut down? And are we worried that that is going to be replicated? Or would fans of that team be worried that that could be replicated in tournament play? Um, for Stanford, for example, uh, the game that they lost, Cameron Brink sat out because she was briefly ill. She came back two days later. She She's fine, but... When she sits, the Cardinal have trouble. Um, And so I think her health going into conference tournament and going into NCAA tournament will be paramount. There's no reason to think that she's not healthy going in, but they are not a team that can afford to lose her for too long. It makes them really susceptible to upsets. Um, I think with Iowa, they're playing Indiana at Indiana. There's no, you know, shame in that kind of a loss. Indiana's a very good team, but they did basically take the approach that they were going to shut down Caitlin Clark's teammates, force Clark to beat them herself. She started to get fatigued, struggled in the second half. They were not able to uh, convert. Iowa was not able to convert. So I think we saw that um, when LSU played uh, Clark and Iowa at the NCAA final last year, there are approaches that as long as you can get Clark's teammates shut down, which you can't do every time because they're also very good. But if you do have those one-off games where the teammates aren't hitting, Clark's not hitting from deep, Iowa can be shut down. They can be beaten. Uh, USC took a ranked loss to Utah, pretty normal stuff. Like I said, the PAC 12 is, is incredibly, incredibly deep, very punishing, very tough. Uh, Juju Watkins had two more 30 point games. Um, they're feeding her and and they'll go where she takes them this year. And I think that they're pretty happy with that. And they're going to build on that next year. Uh, Kansas state, similarly, um, their, their superstar is Ioka Lee. I think that they are going to go as far as she can take them, uh, really, really interested in some of the strengths and weaknesses in, in each team and which teams are best set up to adapt mid-game if plan A isn't working, which, like I said, is what you see from South Carolina a lot. And I would actually argue increasingly um, from Ohio State as well, which is a, a team that is carrying a lot of experience, a lot of veteran leadership. Uh, but despite the chaos, some congratulations are in order. We've got some regular season conference winners, South Carolina, undefeated takes the sec they like i said they are the top of the class they are the standard yukon as of now undefeated in the big east they own that conference um that is is rarely <laughs> a question mark for them stanford uh has earned at least a piece of the pac-12 uh i think they can earn it outright this week if they continue their winning ways very very impressive to get any of a conference title that is that deep, but especially if they take that outright. Ohio State has at least part of the Big Ten title. If they defeat Michigan this week, then that kind of final regular season matchup at Iowa will be mostly for pride and for perhaps, you know, NCAA tournament seeding looks um, because they will have the entirety of the regular season wrapped up if they do get that win against Michigan. Virginia Tech has taken a portion of the ACC. That's another up and down 
up and down conference. Um, very impressive for Virginia Tech to follow up their final four appearance last year with the ACC title this year. But I do want to go back to Stanford for a second. Um, and this echoes one of the conversations that we had last week about Paige Beckers at UConn, who did announce that she will be returning to college for her COVID year, for that, that fifth year of eligibility. Cameron Brink also participated in senior night, senior day last, or yesterday, I guess, as we're recording on Monday. Um, and she said she's undecided. She did fully participate in, in senior day. She did the walkthrough. She did the flowers. She did the speech. She did fully take in that moment, if that was her, her final regular season game uh, at home at Stanford. But she did tell the crowd that she's not sure. I think this is really interesting, not just for what this looks like for the college basketball landscape next year. If we do see these, these fifth-year players come back, it really changes the pipeline for some of these younger players coming in who are incredibly talented. It kind of turns college basketball into this pressure cooker where you have these older players against kind of these younger players who are, you know, you have the older players, you have the experience and the talent. You have the younger players who are just blisteringly talented and, and have nothing to lose. Really interested in how that plays. But I'm just interested in it from a WNBA standpoint as well. We're seeing WNBA teams begin to scout these games. Um, the Chicago Sky, we're at UConn versus DePaul on Sunday, scouting not Beckers, but perhaps someone like Aaliyah Edwards. Um, LA Sparks head coach Kurt Miller was at LSU versus Tennessee this weekend. You actually have to think that if someone like Cameron Brink, if Caitlin Clark, if, if they don't go uh, to the WNBA, that Rakia Jackson will be the consensus number one. And I think she's a great pick. Um, it wasn't an amazing game, but we are just seeing these, these WNBA coaches try to go all in on this particular draft class without actually know exactly what they're looking for. Um, and all I can give is kind of my thought, which is just, I do hope that we see some of these players go pro. I think change is good. I think change is one of the most beautiful things about sports. Um, I want to see these players at a higher level. I want to see room for younger players to come through and, and show us new, different, exciting things in college basketball. Um, but I do think it's, it's one or the other. We're either getting the pressure cooker or we're getting kind of a, an opening of, of the door to, to some new fresh ideas in, in college basketball, which I think would be fun as well. Uh, and then real quick, I want to do two quick individual shout outs. Um, obviously mentioned Caitlin Clark a couple of times. She is now 51 points away from passing Pete Maravich's NCAA all-time scoring record, men's or women's after a 24 point triple double on Sunday against Illinois. She is also 33 points from passing Kansas's Lynette Woodard for the women's major college record. Um, that is the AIAW major college record, which I think increasingly people are saying that should also stand as an NCAA record. It is not Woodard's fault or, or place that that is not uh, encompassed into NCAA records. And she has actually been pushing for uh, a correction of the public record to include those stats. And then I also want to shout out uh, Syracuse guard Daisha Fair, who is now fifth on the all-time NCAA Division I women's basketball scoring list. She surpassed Brittany Griner this weekend by reaching 3,302 career points on Sunday. With just 100 points scored, they are ranked. They will be probably, I mean, almost certainly going to the NCAA tournament, though I think uh, um, there's some question in conference about, about automatic qualification. But with just 100 more points scored, she could reach the top three. I think this is also uh, an accomplishment we're celebrating, and I'm excited to see how far that can go. Um, it would be incredibly cool if we saw 
two new members of the top three in the all-time NCAA D1 scoring list in one season. So that's college basketball. Real quick roundup. Uh, we got a lot to see kind of in the last week and a half of the regular season, and then we're getting into the real nitty-gritty deal with conference tournaments. Do you want to dive deeper into women's sports news of the week? You can get the latest news delivered straight into your inbox. That's right. You can start your morning off right five days a week with the Just Women's Sports newsletter, our free daily newsletter that brings you the latest and greatest in women's sports. Whether it's breaking news, exclusive conversations, or just a cool stat that you might be missing, we've got you covered. So never miss a story on women's sports. You can subscribe for free at justwomensports.com backslash newsletter. That's justwomensports.com backslash newsletter. And we'll see you in your inbox. And then finally, we're going to talk a little bit more international soccer to close. Um, This is an international FIFA break, which means that all club play is currently suspended and teams or players are with their international teams, some of which are in, well, most of which actually are in Olympic qualifying, um, unless you are in that South America or North American, Central American region, the ones playing in the Gold Cup. Um, But I want to talk about European qualifying briefly because we saw some incredible games this weekend in the Nations League semifinals. Quick rundown. Europe, UEFA, has changed the way they do Olympic qualifying. In the past, they used to actually just cherry-pick the top um, finishers from the region at the World Cup. So they did not have their own individual Olympic qualifying. They would say, okay, these top three teams at the World Cup did the best the next year they're going to participate in the Olympics. This was because they didn't want to take anything away from World Cup qualifying or Euros qualifying, which in Europe is extensive. I really actually like a lot of what they do with qualifying. You know, Sandra and I were talking about increased programming in in the uh, Northern South American region. I like the constant qualifying in Europe. I think that programming is really important for smaller nations to build up programs and you can see surprises. Um, but that means that has been everything has been turned into this sort of perpetual Nations League, which not only is used for Olympic qualifying, but will also in the future be used for Euros qualifying and World Cup qualifying. There are different tiers. You can be promoted. You can be relegated in and out. But at the top of the top level, we had four teams battling for Olympic spots. And people might have uh, have seen in the in the past couple of months that we've already seen some top European nations not qualify for the Olympics. I think England was the most shocking one. They did not advance top of their group. The Netherlands did. Um, I think the other one was Sweden, though they were in a group with Spain, which is incredibly tricky, which leads us to our newest qualified team uh, for the 2024 Paris Olympics, which is, in fact, World Cup champion Spain. They won their semifinal against the Netherlands, uh, which advanced them to the Nation League final, and also qualified for the Olympics. In the other game, France defeated Germany. Now, France is already qualified for the Olympics because they are hosting, which means that the third place game, which will be played actually the day this comes out, this episode comes out, uh, between the Netherlands and Germany will decide that final third slot for Europe. I don't know exactly how you quote-unquote solve European qualifying for the Olympics. It's brutal. Three slots for a region that strong is really, really tough. I, however, do not think that they should have an outsized influence at the Olympics because that is not what the Olympics are for. Um, if you want a deeper European look, you can watch watch the Euros. I think that there are a re- there's a reason why these 
competitions are different. And also Europe obviously has many slots for the World Cup. The Olympics in spirit are truly supposed to be a, a competition across the world. I don't think you want to see too out too much outsized influence from one particular region. Um, I actually also think that Nations League in some ways is more competitive than just picking out of the World Cup. Um, however, it does seem kind of crazy, right? That that England, for example, makes it all the way to the World Cup final after having won the Euros the previous year and will not even be participating in uh, in in the Olympics. But I think that's exciting. I think we saw some really, really good soccer from all four of these teams this week. Um, Spain looks great. Obviously, the European competition is going to look a little bit different than maybe what we saw in the, in the Gold Cup, because as we mentioned, Gold Cup, we're seeing a lot of players in preseason because of the nature of the NWSL being a soccer uh, summer league. Um, in these European teams, we're seeing a lot of players who are mid-season, but the momentum that Spain has created is incredible. And I do think it's, um, it's worthwhile to put forth the question now of, is this going to be the first team that goes back-to-back winning a World Cup and winning an Olympics? It's never been done before. Obviously, the team that has come the closest is the United States, but even they have never done it. Uh, Spain qualifying for the Olympics for the first time in their history this year. Just really fascinated to see how that plays. Um, You watch them now and you think, yes, this is the best team in the world. Can they carry this momentum? Can they stay healthy? Can they implement new coaching ideas with their new coaching staff? Can they maintain form in what is a pretty grueling two years where they, where they do, you know, the fall to spring club season, play a summer tournament, fall to spring club season, play a summer tournament. Fatigue is a real factor here. Again, they will play France in the nation's league final. I also think France is looking like one of the best versions of themselves right now. Not unlike Spain, they also ousted a very unpopular coach. It looks like they're implementing a plan. They're implementing a project. I would love to see France do well at the Home Olympics this summer. They are a team that has always been a contender. They have always been in the upper echelon of European competition, and they struggle in major tournaments. And I would really, really love to see them do well at home. They did not uh, pull that off in 2019. I would like to see growth from them there. Uh, and then, like I said, Germany and the Netherlands will play for that final slot. When I talk about a b- grueling schedule, I don't think there's any better example than the Netherlands. Um, because they were an Olympic team in 2021, they have played in these summer tournaments year after year after year. I don't think that is easy. And when you do have, this is something we talk about, the load management, we talk about injuries, we talk about is the NWSL doing the right thing by playing in the summer? There is always a question mark of if you're in this European schedule and you're playing fall to spring, summer tournament, fall to spring, summer tournament, you're doing Nations League, this sort of perpetual Nations League, you're qualifying, you're always qualifying for something. You maybe have friendlies to get ready, you got tune-up friendlies. All of this programming, does it set European uh, countries up to succeed at these summer tournaments long-term? I think it's an interesting question. Um, I don't think it will necessarily impact the results of this summer. I do think that Europe is poised to do quite well at the Olympics this year. Um, But yeah, the Netherlands are are a really good example of a team that has struggled with injury and has had some coaching turnover, not least in in part to the fact that they play so many summer games as a nation. And then Germany, I also just think is interesting. They were the Euro runners-up against England looked like a promising young team that 
really, really struggled at the World Cup last year. They they bombed out of the group stage, as everyone recalls. They they to to Colombia. They lost to Colombia, um, and it's just been they've kind of struggled to see through this project that was sort of promised at the Euros. I don't know exactly who I like in this third place game um, because like I said, the Netherlands look tired and Germany looks a little bit aimless, but um, I think it will be fascinating to see who moves forward in that as well. Just to remind everybody, the qualified teams for the Olympics at this moment are the U S Canada, Brazil, Colombia, New Zealand, France, and Spain. We're going to be getting answers in the Asia region um, at the end of this week. And then African qualifiers actually go into April. So we'll see the whole field in a couple of months but always have to keep an eye on the larger competition, the bigger picture. Um, and I think there's a lot of really interesting storylines going into this summer. But let me just say, European qualifying is brutal and those teams look good. So if you can check those games out on Wednesday, I highly recommend. Which actually brings me to my final thought of the episode. This has been the theme of like the whole episode. It's funny, I, I wrote it up when I was script writing and then I was like, oh, I think we've actually touched on this a lot. So I'll keep it brief. One of the other big storylines of the week is the Canada Soccer Players Association is suing... Canada Soccer, the, or members of Canada Soccer, member of the Canada Soccer Board uh, for alleged neglect of their fiduciary duty dating back to a business deal or kind of a restrictive media rights deal done with Canada Soccer Business, which the Soccer Players Association has alleged, they have said that it um, is so restrictive that it has negatively impact investment and growth for Canada Soccer for years. This is probably can be seen as an extension of some of the protests that we saw last year from the Canada women's soccer players who did not feel like they were receiving equal treatment. They did not feel like they were receiving equal investment. To be fair, the Canada men's soccer team also has serious issues with this particular rights deal. They have issues with Canada soccer. This is not necessarily just a gendered problem, but as we know a lot of times in women's sports, when there are... Uh, budget issues across multiple teams. A lot of times it is the women's team who hurts the most. Um, and I just want to say, I mean, I think this whole episode is a really good example of what can happen when teams feel secure and they feel like they can be free and be brave and play well on the field. And what happens when teams don't feel that way. Um, we feel very good about the U.S. I think they were very invigorated by the investment and the gamble made in the hiring of Emma Hayes that felt ambitious, that felt like the U.S. really wanting, the U.S. Soccer Federation still really wanting to be the premier team in the world. We're seeing Spain continue their ascension and look even better than ever after the World Cup win, after a very public battle, not only with their coach that was in place during that World Cup win, but also their federation president. We're seeing France look sharp and look like they know what they're doing after ousting their own embattled coach, we're seeing on the flip side, we're missing teams like Jamaica at the Gold Cup. Uh, we're seeing actually Nigeria in, in African qualifying has now made it to the final round for the first time in a number of years. Um, they are a team that has always publicly have to push for more resources or even to get paid on time. Um, whenever we speak competitively about women's soccer, the teams that always feel the best supported off the field are in that conversation of most competitive on. And you see the range of teams who are already some of the most materially supported teams in the world to teams who are, are fighting for basic travel budgets. Uh, again, getting paid on time per diems, 
salaries for their coaches, being competitive in the coaching market, and what that means when you are unable to get that support from your federation and turn that into these looks at major tournaments. Which is to say, I think I really like the slogan of equal pay that the United States took on because it's catchy, it immediately snaps, it immediately makes sense. But these issues are many layered, they are worldwide, and they are also unique to each particular country. Um, so keep an eye on, on Canada's lawsuit. Keep an eye on teams doing well when they're feeling like they've got coaches in, places, uh, in place that support them. And, and keep an eye on the teams that are not participating in perhaps something like the Gold Cup or teams that are not able to make that jump to uh, do well in the Nations League because there is still so much further to go. So thanks, y'all, for listening. This has been a special edition of The Late Sub. We've got new good stuff for you next week. We've got more U.S. to talk about, more soccer, more basketball. And I also just want to shout out real quick, you guys may have noticed that we have upgraded our newsletter from three to five days a week, which is maybe fitting for a week like this one. There's too much women's soccer, women's sports news to talk about to just get into three days a week. So tap in, subscribe to the newsletter, and we will see you next Wednesday with a new episode of The Late Sub. Thank you.